You are listening to The Word at Work, a podcast for Christian professionals. I'm your host, Miranda Carls, and I am so thrilled to have today's guest joining us for a conversation on the topic of Christian apologetics. Brett Banford is the brain and the heart and the voice behind Rad Apologetics. He works as a scientist and is also a Christian apologist, and he's passionate about equipping Christians with tools to defend their Christian faith. Because apologetics is the term used to describe the process of making a logical defense for something, Christian apologetics is the term used to describe making a defense for the Christian faith. Just to tee this up a little bit for you all, in a workplace setting, this is of course not about starting a formal theological debate or picking a fight with someone on company time. That's not the intent here, nor would those approaches be very fruitful. Know this important conversation with Brett is really with the goal of being more prepared to make a defense of the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect if and when other people ask us why we believe what we do, just as it says in 1 Peter 3. Before we dig in, take a moment to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss future episodes as they launch. Well, let's dig in. I'd love first if um, you could share with everyone just a little bit about your background and what got you into the study of apologetics initially. My academia background is in science, specifically my bachelor's degree is in microbiology. And then I have a master's degree as well in biotechnology. And so that's a little bit about my academic background as a profession. I jumped into uh, medical device product development. And so I specifically work for an in vitro diagnostics company, developing medical device products specifically for the diagnosis of sepsis. Uh, And so that's a little bit about my profession. There's obviously a lot more to that, but as far as how I got involved in apologetic, I was kind of, I was raised uh, in a Christian um, household. I would say we were not actively practicing Christians. We did go to church. It was a Methodist church, and this went on from the time I could remember until about middle school. Within that time frame, though, I didn't know that much about Jesus or really anything in regards to the tenets of Christianity or the doctrines per se. I just kind of knew it was a social thing that my family, and then eventually it kind of just got to a point where we were getting older and didn't really want to go anymore. Um, So we just kind of stopped going. And so from then on out, I would say from the end of middle school all the way through high school and into college, I would say, and and then finishing college, uh, I kind of just went by what a lot of people go by who maybe don't have the crystal, uh, the Christian background upbringing is just kind of did what my parents told me. My parents told me that going to school, getting a good job, finding a wife to marry, buying a house, starting a family, these were all things that were a part of life and that would bring you fulfillment. And so that's what I did. And so I went through high school, went through college, and never really thought too much about uh, a lot of the existential questions, if you will, about life, like meaning, morality, how we got here, where we're going. I never really thought about those through college. And so after I did all those things and I got you know married, got a good job, bought a house, started buying things, I really had this existential crisis of this really can't be it. 
I was doing all these things and I, I thought once I was able to start buying things like, man, that would bring me joy. That would bring me fulfillment and contentment. And it didn't happen. And in fact, it got worse because once I realized that it didn't happen, I had this like dread moment of like, I can't do this for 30 plus more years because mm -hmm. I just, I, it's just not there. Like I, I know that I'm going to be miserable. And so I need something. I have this like, for lack of a better term, this like, I, I called it a God-shaped heart. I didn't know that at the time. I, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. a God-shaped hole in my heart. And I didn't know this at the time that it was that shape, but that's what it was. And so kind of wrapping it up, we had a friend of my wife's that invited us to go to a church when I was going there and I was kind of going through the motions and the pastor was telling me about Jesus and accepting him into my life and that he could change those things. And I wanted to believe them. They sounded nice, but my natural desires and tendencies as a scientist and somebody with a curiosity like mindset, I wasn't initially thinking about, oh, like, you know, Jesus can fix all these things. My initial kind of mindset was almost skepticism. I was like, well, how do I know this Jesus guy is who he said he was? You know, how do I even know that like God exists? I was like, what if all this, you know, is just kind of fake? I just had all these questions and I kind of did what most people do in, in the 2000s now at the age of the internet. I just started Googling things. Man, I stumbled upon... A uh, Christian apologist known as Frank, who's a very prominent, well-known Christian apologist. And then from there, that really opened up the floodgates. And that's really kind of a brief uh, overview of how I got into apologetics. And then I just started reading books and digesting content. And, uh, and yeah. Then, yeah, here I am. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And how, how many years ago was that again, that you first stumbled upon Frank's um, information? Yeah, I think it was probably 2000 and want to say 17, I believe, sure. um, is about when, when that happened. Thank you for sharing your background, especially. I think that's really relatable, what you described, um, I think, to a lot of Christians and, and non-Christians um, alike have that as part of their past story, that experience of like checking all the boxes and then getting to this point of like, well, I've checked all the boxes, but something, something is missing. And so thank you for sharing that. I also, as a, I mean, we're both parents. We talked about that before hitting the record button earlier. And, and I was thinking about parenthood while you were talking as well about just childhood. And I grew up in the church as well and consistently went to church, but then I was reflecting lately about how I never at any point during my childhood was asked why I believed what I believed. Like I, we grew up in a different time where that just wasn't a question that I was ever asked. And right. I think our, our kids now are growing up with those types of questions. I think that makes this topic even more um, important to talk about. Well, and the more interesting thing to add on to that is that it's a twofold thing now. And it's because if you're not going to give them the answers, they have the internet now mm. and you know good and well how much available information there is out there on the other side of the yes. Christian perspective. So that's why it's even so much more important. I feel like to, to really prepare the next generation is because, you know, if we don't get the, the right information to them, then they're going to find it from possibly somebody that you don't want them to find it from. Yeah, absolutely. And even for us as adults, we're on the internet all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. Making sure our own faith is solid and that our, our own hearts are well protected from 
the, you know, the mounds and mounds of lies that exist on the internet that we can read something and, and be able to think back like, no, I, I also know, I, or I know this to be true. And that, that negates this, this lie that I'm reading. So really, really excited to just about this conversation we're having. I've been looking forward to it. And as a scientist, you're a scientist, and it, it makes me think of um, clients I've had who've been in, in similar kind of fields. I'm, I'm thinking of an engineer that I, I worked with once that was a Christian. He had disclosed with me. I knew he was a Christian. He knew I was as well as, as we were working together. And he had, had shared how uncomfortable he was to even mention his faith at work, not even talking about anything that would approach workplace evangelism, but, but even saying something like, oh, I'm heading to a church barbecue after work felt uncomfortable to him. He didn't want people to know he was a Christian because he felt like his intellectual (laughs) colleagues who he knew were atheists. He felt like they would think less of his intelligence if they knew he believed in the God of the Bible and in the resurrection and all of these things that they believed to be illogical. So I'm curious because you're a scientist. I'm curious if in in your line of work in science, if you've had any experiences similar to that. I work in a pretty small department. I work in a mm. big company, but the department I was in was pretty small. Gotcha. And I can really only think of one instance where we were all at lunch or something like that. And this person came and she said something along the lines of, well, we know that there's junk DNA. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this at all. This, no. this concept, <laughs> junk DNA. Essentially, all junk DNA is, is is DNA that was thought of to not encode for um, a specific function within our bodies. So basically, it has no purpose to it, has no function. And this person's essentially, her argument was that why would God design us to have uh, non-functional, like, genetic information within us like that serves no purpose and I remember at the time of her saying this that I had known about this for a while and come to find out like there was actually evidence to show that what had previously been thought of as junk DNA actually did come to find out have functional purpose to it Mm -hmm. so it was already kind of been it had been refuted more in popular popular academia now and so you know, I wanted to like say something like to that like context, but there were so many like people like around and everyone mm-hmm. was kind of like laughing and it was kind of just a short-sighted conversation. And, and I just decided to kind of let it go, but that was probably six or seven. It was probably, no, nah, it wasn't that long. It was about four or five years ago. But my point is that set, that small thing really like resonated with me. And I'm like, this person is willing to put out arguments to suggest, you know, that God doesn't exist knowing that there's plenty of people like in the world that do think they exist. And it was like, she almost didn't seem sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it really, really convicted me kind of then to really pursue even further to your point, to understand what rationale and reason there is to believe in the God of the Bible. And yeah, I just remember that as an impact moment in my professional life, but that's probably one of the only instances that I can remember being uh, a little bit perturbed about, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting observation because you're right. I think people feel very comfortable saying that they don't believe or even that they're searching for something. I don't know if you're familiar with Beckett Cook, but he, he talks about, he's a Christian and he has said, 
people are fine with you searching for truth as long as you don't find the truth, <laughs> um, which yeah, I, yeah. I think is kind of a general attitude that that we can see in culture. And and no, that's a really helpful example. And people listening, like you, you may or may not have instances where you know, people ask you about your faith at work. A lot of that depends on the type of work setting that you're in. But the, I think a, a knowledge of apologetics is, again, really helpful for fortifying our personal faith and just being prepared so that if somebody does bring something up, that, that we do have a logical response. Because for a lot of people saying, well, I know this because the Bible says so, <laughs> that might not mean anything to them because that requires a belief in the reliability of scriptures. So having other information available is really helpful, which really brings me to my next question. If people are listening and they're kind of curious what some of these arguments for the Christian faith might be, could you share a couple of your, your favorite arguments or bits of knowledge that really reinforce or support the reliability of, of the Bible and the Christian faith? Yeah, I can definitely share uh, a few. I think it's important to mention that there are different apologetic methodologies. It's not just one straightforward way to kind of defend your faith. And just to give a very brief overview of each, there's classical apologetics, which is basically the methodology used of the philosopher, the philosophers um, of history, like kind of Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, who just use arguments of like, there's one that's basically stated of the, the unmoved mover, if you've heard of that before, but basically it means essentially that it's a cause effect thing, that every cause has an effect, and that when you go all the way back uh, to the initial cause, that we would call that cause God per se. Now, that's just a, a very paraphrased version of that argument. But that's more the classical apologetics. And then what I'm more familiar with and what I find more um, appealing in my kind of evangelistic approach towards apologetics is evidential apologetics. And that's looking more into like the archaeological evidences, biological evidences, the historical evidences through the reliability of scriptures and so forth, and really building that cumulative case for the belief in uh, the resurrection on a number of varying evidences and arguments. Then the last one is what's known as presuppositional uh, apologetics. And this one by far is the most uh, intellectually taxing. And essentially what it says is that basically the God of the Bible exists because without them, without the God of the Bible, you couldn't prove anything to be true. And so it basically takes the stance that God is a presupposition to even understanding the world around us and that you have to assume God to exist before you can even make sense of the reality in the world that we live in. Very, very paraphrase um, version of that methodology as well. A uh, lot more intellectually taxing. And so I tend to focus more on the evidential. And then I would say the next thing to understand is that there's kind of this, I would say, tiered approach to get to the Christian God. There's many arguments out there that just demonstrate that um, that a entity or a being that we would call God is exists per se. Mm -hmm. And we can't necessarily 
connotate that it's the Christian God with just that specific argument. Mm-hmm. Arguments for these would be like the cosmological argument. This is one particularly that I like because it's fairly simple, I think, to understand. And it's a lot more complex than what I'll tell you that it is. But I think it's a good a starting point for many people to wrap their minds around. And it gets at uh, Big Bang cosmology. Uh, and essentially what it says is that anything that the, this other argument goes, anything that begins to exist um, has a cause. Uh, the universe has a cause. Therefore, the, therefore that cause is, is God pretty much. Or therefore, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that <laughs> I have a hard time sometimes stating these premises, but yeah. um, that's essentially how the argument goes. And that's a great place to start with just for kind of showing the general existence from God more from a scientific kind of standpoint. My personal favorite, I would say that is most practical and most people can relate to would be the moral argument for the existence of God. And essentially, it states that if objective moral values exist, then there's an objective moral law giver, and that would be God. And of course, the statement is that objective moral values do exist. And so then we accept that um, there is a God. And I like this argument particularly because I think it speaks to the intuitiveness that everyone feels. Mm. We don't question whether or not it's, for example, like wrong to kill a baby. We all Mm -hmm. just intuitively know that and that it's more improbable that you should question the alternative to that that it's not wrong to kill babies than it is to just generally accept that as being objectively true. And all of these, you know, are much deeper than what I'm obviously referring to. And there's counter objections that can be talked to about. That's just one of my personal favorites, because I feel like most people can instantly connect um, with that and kind of see the impossibility to the contrary, or that subjective morality is, is not really what we experience or deem to be true. But more so, there's a few other ones, I would say. You mentioned the reliability of kind of of scripture. And this is the last thing I'll say, because I don't want to drag on about it. I would say that the one of the best places to start if you're strictly interested in proving um, the Christian God, and where a lot of people start, is really proving the reliability of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And so there's many scholars that take this approach, but essentially... There's the minimal facts argument by Gary Habermas. I wouldn't call this necessarily the best approach, but it does lay out a kind of a case for why we can accept the reliability of scripture to be true. And there's a few facts that are basically accepted by all scholars that happened. And when you put all of those facts together, it is most reasonable to infer the best explanation of those facts to be that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And one of them is that Jesus was crucified. Another is that he was um, buried in a tomb. And then one of the biggest facts that I think uh, really speaks to the credibility of the resurrection is, and the one that ties it all together, because you find most that accept, okay, Jesus was crucified and okay, you know, he was, he was buried and then there was an empty tomb that doesn't bother people. It's the post-resurrection appearances Mm. to people that really bother the scholars. And that's the one that they have a hard time to. But when you add that in, which is supported by 
not only the gospels, but also the extra biblical literature, then you start to build that case where we can find it credible that Jesus did arise. Uh, and now there's other, there's other facts that kind of go along with that. You have the conversion of Paul and the conversion of James, Jesus's brother, as well as the explosiveness expansion of the Christian faith. The martyrdom of the disciples is another one. There's a lot of different other ones that can tie into this, but that's a great place to start for somebody who's really just interested in looking at the resurrection first. So that's what I would say before dragging on. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you, Brett. I like how you also shared the variety. Like you said, there's there's different approaches to apologetics. So if, if apologetics is making a defense, there's several angles or even disciplines to take in, in presenting that case. And, and so some of it, I'm thinking of the relational component, some of it's knowing your audience and, and just like evangelism, often relational foundation helps you get much further in the conversations and they're more effective. And so knowing what would resonate with someone so if you have, you know, a, a close coworker that's been asking questions, like knowing if, if the, the moral argument or something more physical, like something found through archaeological discoveries or, you know, just knowing what would resonate with them and, and even being okay with exploring with each other. Like, like you said, we have the internet, we don't have to know it all and, and having some resources that we can, can go to. And that, that brings me to another question that I think people would love to hear because there is so much information out there, what are some of your favorite resources? So if someone's listening and they would like to start doing a little exploring or read a little bit more on the topic of Christian apologetics, what are some, some of your favorite go-to resources for people just getting started? Yeah, sure. I feel like I give, I give Frank Turk the most plugs, but he, you know, he's really the reason that opened up my eyes and started me down um, this path. And so I give credit where credit's due. Uh, and I recommend this book in particularly because I think it lays out a nice case for the truth of Christianity, his foundational book that he's released called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And the book's a great book because it really lays out, like I said, a cumulative case for why we can have confidence and reason to believe that Christianity is the truth. And it does so by basically answering four pivotal questions. The first one is, does truth exist? And the second is, does God exist? The third is, are miracles possible? And then the fourth is, is the New Testament reliable? And if all of those questions can be answered, then you know he lays out the rationale that it's reasonable to accept that the resurrection is true. And because of the resurrection being true, that means that the claims that Jesus made, specifically in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that he's making exclusive claims that then therefore all other religions are false. And so I really recommend people start there because it really lays the groundwork from philosophy with does truth exist, it then lays it with more of the specific arguments with does God exists. And then he goes into what we were just kind of talking about more of the reliability of the scriptures with discussing is the New Testament reliable. So I think that's a great place to start. There's so many other books um, and resources to start. And then I, I would say the next thing that I would recommend, and this is just from personal experience, is that whichever argument you are most 
um, interested in, choose to understand that one fully or mm -hmm. to the to where you feel comfortable enough to speak to it. Because one thing that I found myself to be guilty of is, you know, I just want to digest as much as possible as we were kind of talking about, I think before the recording is just, or maybe even in this in the recording, there's just a wealth of information out there. Mm -hmm. And it can be overwhelming. And you can almost become a jack of all trades and a master of none. But yeah, so I would recommend picking something that you're most interested in and make sure you have a full grasp on that, whether it's, you know, biological evidences, uh, philosophical arguments, archaeological evidences, looking to the Bible itself from a scriptural reliability standpoint, stay within those sectors first, make sure you have a good grasp, and then you can start to kind of branch out in the other top. That's really helpful because I know I myself have have had a tendency to <laughs> want to chase all the little and topics tough. and it gets overwhelming for sure. I, I quite like the, some of the archeological evidence. I feel like that's really tangible because it is about physical things that people have found. And even I'm going to misquote the numbers. I don't know if you, but the, oh, the, the facts about the number of new Testament manuscripts that were copied over I think less than 50 years and just the quantity is, is out of this world compared to any other work of antiquity and just little things like that, I think are just so compelling and, and they are, they're easy to share really quickly and get people thinking and they, they challenge doubts in a very um, tangible way that people can start to grasp if they are in a place of unbelief about the reliability of the Bible. Yep, I would I would definitely I mean agree with you. There's definitely no other historical document of antiquity that has as much confirmation of its accuracy and transmission, or just the amount of availability of uh, manuscripts in general. And there's a lot more to it, obviously, um, than that. That's why there's scholarship that's involved with it. But uh, mm -hmm. in terms of having the availability of of of, of actually manuscripts to reference to. Yeah, there's just a wealth of information and it's a great place to start and there's no other document even close to it. Yeah, so cool. I There's something that you talk about that I want to ask you um, about because I think you do such a good job explaining it and it's so practical and that's like spotting logical fallacies when others raise objections or even ridicule the Christian faith. Again, some people, people listening, you may or may not be in those situations but I think it's really helpful and I love how you explain, explain this, Brett. So I know it's an extensive topic, but if you could share just a couple examples of the fallacies that you hear most often and, and unpack those a bit for us. Yeah, no, I would love to do that. And the reason that I enjoy logical fallacies so much is it's not so much to say that it's like a quick gotcha right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes yeah. people, people don't even know that they're making right. the logical fallacies but it's helping people um, in as lovingly of a way as possible think mm -hmm. through the reasoning of the arguments that they're putting forth. Because one thing that I learned very quickly about apologetics and just being in this, I would say, I don't want to call it an industry, but just being in this field, I would say, mm -hmm. is that you see a lot of the same things repeated over by people with opposing views. And you start to realize you know, there's not much weight or, or, or justification behind what it is that they're saying. 
And I learned very quickly that there's names for all of these things. There's names for why when you read something, you're like, well, that doesn't really, you know, say anything against what my point is. And so that's what, you know, kind of logical fallacies are, is that, you know, they're, they're lapses in reasoning that essentially don't give credibility to the statement that somebody is making. To give a few examples, and maybe that'll better help explain it. Uh, one of the most one of the most common ones that you'll see is called an ad hominem. And basically that is a fancy way of saying attacking somebody's character to show that their argument is false. And so it would be something along the lines of, well, I would say, you know, I think the Bible is true because it's the word of God. And this person would say something along the lines of, well, it can't be the word of God because Christians are stupid and, you know, they're just, they're just imbeciles and they don't know why they believe what they believe and so forth. And so you can kind of see what I'm getting at. They're not really mm -hmm. saying why the Bible is true is untrue. They're basically just attacking the person who holds that belief. And so, yeah, so that's a really common one as an ad hominem. And another one that's not, I would say, like the ad hominem is the easiest one to spot. Anytime somebody is calling you ignorant or stupid or not smart and in, in terms of avoiding the actual claim that you're making, mm -hmm. that one's pretty easy to spot. Yeah. This next one can be more difficult. And this is another one that I probably see the most often. It's called the straw man fallacy. Uh, and the reason it's named that is because what the person will do that you're in a discussion with, they will create a false argument or a false belief for what they think you believe in order to basically knock it down like a scarecrow. Mm. So really what they're doing is they're creating a misrepresentation of what your belief is in order to make it seem silly or easier to defeat. And so I'll give a very quick example of this. If you've ever seen somebody say, well, Christianity, you know, I don't understand it. Like, why would God sacrifice himself to himself just to redeem himself, right? Like something along mm -hmm. those lines of like, why is God killing himself? And they're kind of making basically a mockery of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. But what they're doing is they're misrepresenting what, the, what Christians believe about the Trinity or about God and his nature, is mm -hmm. Jesus even says in the Bible that I give up my life freely, nobody takes it from me. So there's that already aside, mm -hmm. that's already a misrepresentation. But that that's kind of my point, is that they're, they're putting things into such a way to where if you're not privy to that knowledge beforehand, it can sound silly. And so again, they're attacking an argument that isn't even a belief that Christians hold. So I hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That probably was not the most... <laughs> The, not the simplest uh, explanation of a straw man fallacy that could be, but that's just an example of that. It's attacking a belief that, that we don't actually hold to make yeah. you seem silly. Yeah. It, they're, they're a lot easier. They are a lot easier to spot on social media because you have time mm -hmm. to process, you have time to look, you know, at it in conversation. It's not that simple. It's not that easy. Yeah. No, that's really helpful, Brett. And I know I just, just to kind of clear up for the listeners that when we use words like defense and debate and make a case for, and, and all of this, it can all sound almost aggressive because of the words that we're using. 
but the like the two passages that that come to mind um, for me when I think of apologetics and add to this or you know add your thoughts as well. But I think of Second Corinthians um, ten five. So we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So destroying arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised, that's in response to something. It's not, you know, again, seeking out to, to pick a fight or something and then always being prepared to make a defense. Again, it's a, the defensive, not the offensive. So I think that is helpful as we apply this to the workplace that, <laughs> that we're not talking about kind of starting debates in, in the workplace, but when there are cases where um, something is raised, we have a logical response to give. We have a defense for the faith that we have in God. Yeah, and I would and I would just say to add on to that, Miranda, I, I heard this when I first started out in apologetics and it always resonated with me and I still remember it is always remember that you're not answering a question, you're answering a person, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's a person behind that question. And so, you know, while yes, we are attacking the defending the argument or however, you know, it was phrased uh, in first Corinthians or in Corinthians, we ask, we have to also remember that, right? What's, how does the passage go that if you can have all the knowledge and the wisdom in the world, but if you don't have love, then you have nothing. And so, you know, we have to remember, we have to remember that in these conversations as well. And, um, and judge the situation and the context of the situation that you're in and the type of relationship, you know, mm-hmm. is this somebody you're going to see many times over, like in the workplace? Is this a one-time thing, not a one-time thing? So context and circumstance is important when you're addressing these as well. And I would just add this one last thing, because there's a whole nother road that I can go in terms of the practical way to actually have these types of discussions. But our goal as apologists and Christians, and mind you, as an aside, everybody is called to be an apologist, a Christian mm-hmm. apologist. Yeah. It is scripturally sound. So I'll, I read that in your excerpt for your chapter. And I thought that was wonderful that you'd mentioned that. But I would say that it's not our job to convince people of yeah. Jesus and his resurrection and the truth of the, of the gospel, right? That's the job of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. right? We can plant seeds and we can water, but it's, it's the Holy Spirit that actually causes the growth and the conviction for that person to come to God. And so um, our job is to remove obstacles because I like to think of apologetics more as, more as pre-evangelism. You're, you're preparing that person to be able to receive the message and to let the Holy Spirit do their working. And if nothing else, if all you do is, uh, Greg Kokel puts it this way, is leave a rock in that person's shoe, leave a question that maybe lingers with them. You, you don't know the effect or the impact that they may, you may never see what the result of that happens. Yeah. I loved how you called it pre-evangelism. I think that's a really great way to look at it, removing barriers and that, is such a good mindset to keep in mind as well, because the goal is not, well, while we might be armed with all of this smart stuff after we look into it, the goal is not to look smart or to be right. I couldn't say it any better than you just did, like to remove barriers so that that they could come to know and, and believe. And yeah, such good stuff and, and so practical. Is there anything else 
Brett, that you would like to share as a Christian professional yourself with the Christian professionals that are listening today? I, I would actually, and this was on my, I don't know, this is on my heart and I really want to share this because I want anybody who's listening to this, I want them to, even if they don't, you know, know all the arguments yet, and even if they don't have a good reason to be able to state or defend why they believe what they believe, I want to give people with something that really influenced me and will influence you to at least have better conversations with those in your workplace or even out anywhere in the world. And where I'm going with this is, uh, Bryn, are you familiar with Greg Kokel's book, Tactics? I have not read it. It's on my list. Because it's one of the best books that I've read that speaks to practical um, apologetics. And I'll give you just a very snippet of the big kind of takeaway from me. And I want people to understand this because it can have an immediate impact on your conversations and and not make you seem overzealous or also incompetent at the same time. And essentially, when you approach a conversation with somebody, one of the things that we don't realize is that sometimes we're, we don't even know what we're arguing about or what we're trying mm-hmm. to defend. And I'll give this example. Let's just say that somebody approaches you, uh, you know, in your profession and they say, you know, oh, you don't believe in evolution? And you say, well, of course, you know, I don't believe in evolution. And then you go down this long route of all these different things. And, you know, you're trying to talk about evolution when in reality, evolution has so many different meanings used just as that simple term, right? Mm. Are you talking about common ancestry? You're talking about microevolution. Are you talking about macroevolution? Are you talking about change over time? Are you talking about neo-Darwinism, right? Like there's all these meanings that encompass evolution. And so it's so important that before we go into these, these conversations, that we understand what it is that we're actually trying to defend or that we're actually even trying to discuss to begin with. And so I want to give you just three quick questions that if you read this book, you'll read them in there as well, to at least set the foundation for you to start having better conversations about your faith. And the first is no matter what somebody asks you, if it's in regards to your faith, you always want to ask them, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the word evolution? What do you mean by God? What's your version of God? Do you think God is some magical, mystical man in the sky, right? Like when you say God, what do you mean, right? Because what you'll find is many people don't view God in the same way that Christians view God. So half the time when you're arguing about God, you're arguing about a straw man version of God, right? That doesn't Mm. even, that you don't even believe in, but that's what that person thinks you believe in. So you can see how this can go awry. So always get clarity in the topics that you're actually discussing. So you want to ask, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by whatever topic they're bringing up? And then, okay, okay, you know, most of the time I will say, and I've seen this, is that a lot of times people don't know what they mean. They're just kind of parroting what they've seen in popular culture or just, you know, what's been kind of told to them. But if they do actually tell you what they mean by that, Usually at this point, this is where we're now talking about kind of the the shifting of burden of proof. So now they're going to start to kind of make claims about certain things. Well, you know, like I believe evolution is uh, such and such that we all came from molecules that eventually evolved into bacteria. And then, you know, that they'll give a definition per se. 
The next question you need to ask them, and this is now, this is the turning point in the conversation. Instead of you needing to defend your beliefs, this is now making them defend their worldview. And this is so key. The next question you want to ask them is, well, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to the conclusion that man evolved from bacteria? What justification or reasoning do you have from that? And at this point, now the burden of proof is on them to kind of give you why they believe what they believe. Because what people don't realize is that atheists also have a worldview. They also view the big questions of reality through their presuppositional lenses, whether it's scientific materialism, naturalism, they have moral, they have moral structures that they believe, believe whether it's evolutionary morality or subjective morality or humanism, that's, you know, a format of a moral system. So make them give a justification for their beliefs and don't get caught on the fly. And then the last question is, and this is actually to the point where if you do have a reason or you are familiar with some of the justifications for your own beliefs, you can say, okay, well, you know, I'm not sure about whatever it is that they said, whatever explanation for how they came to their conclusions. I'm not sure about that, but have you ever considered X? Have you ever considered Y? So that's kind of the basic structure of a very practical way to begin to have more productive conversations with people. And, uh, and Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, really goes into this, and it gives a lot more scenarios about different personalities that you'll face, different types of structures of conversations mm. that may arise. And he gives his own personal experiences. So what do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? And I don't know about whatever, but have you ever considered this? So that's just what I want to leave people with as a way to just start to think about how they have conversations with the people in their lives. Yeah, that's great. So practical. Um, so Tactics by Greg Kokel. And speaking of resources, you are a resource, Brett, through, through Rad Apologetics. How can people find you? What are, what are the best ways to find you online? Yeah, so I, I, have, I have all the social media uh, profiles, Facebook, Instagram. I started a TikTok not too long ago, and I also have a YouTube channel, which I mostly just post all of my reels from Instagram on all of those other accounts. And so most of the content is carryover, but it's just there to expand my reach. I primarily interact with most people um, on Instagram. And I'm also currently in the process, and I haven't told anybody this yet, but I'm also currently in the process of creating um, online courses for people awesome. because I want to bring all of this information into a more easily accessible way to digest because much of the content that I put out right now is kind of bite-sized information that kind of spans a variety of topics. But I want to put this into something that's more easily accessible for people to go through and have access to. And so I have future plans for that probably not anytime soon, but um, it is in the works and I'm doing that in the free time that I have. And so, yeah, reach out to me on any of those platforms, primarily Instagram is the best way um, to get in, in contact with me though. Yeah, that's great. Well, I will put links um, to your social media profiles in the show notes for this show. And then let me know, Brett, when your online courses are up and running, I'll share those with, with my audience as well. Those that sounds amazing to have more resources kind of breaking down Christian apologetics. So thank you so much for the work that you do. 
supporting us in, in being able to defend our faith and, and doing that with love and, and gentleness and respect and in a, in a very spirit led way as well. So just really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. You're very welcome. And I hope everybody listening here just has a little bit more confidence and in the path ahead uh, for them if they are interested in apologetics. It, it's definitely worthwhile. You don't have to be an expert to have a an understanding of why you believe what you believe. And I would definitely recommend anybody looking to strengthen their faith and their relationship with Lord to pursue to pursue apologetics.